welcome to Read by Example, where teachers are leaders and leaders know literacy. And today I am talking with Sarah Wolfen and Rachel Gabriel. They are both professors out of the University of Connecticut, and they have written a wonderful book called Making Teacher Evaluation Work, A Guide for Literacy Teachers and Leaders. That's through Heinemann. I was just telling them before I recorded uh, I found this book at a conference in a Heinemann booth. Someone read a, wrote a book just for me. Uh, obviously not the case, but the, to the point is this is something that I've wondered a lot about. I've read it and I just found it very informative and I continue to come back to it just in my own work as a principal. And um, I think it'd be very helpful for uh, other leaders out there. So anyway, welcome, Sarah. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I want to talk about the book, uh, just a specific question, question around how do we supervise and support staff, especially during these uncertain times. But I do have a question because you're both active on Twitter. And I think you both do Twitter really well. You don't seem to take it too seriously, um, but you also will push back on things. Um, and one of the things you push back on is this conversation that's happening, I think more in media, but with, within ed educators too, of that all oh, the kids are out of school for you know months and they're just gonna have this gap or we get into this singular vision, like you were speaking at Rachel at the state reading convention in Wisconsin about dyslexia and, and phonics instruction, and people seem to take one side or the other. And just why do people in education get stuck on a singular idea about anything, literacy, leadership, uh, any topic? What, what is that about? I think that part of it, well, I think it's rooted in two things. I think one part of it is it's a sign that education is a highly political, field and entity and we sometimes forget about that and we say oh we're just teaching reading or oh we just have a new math program and we don't think about the power and the politics behind it and the way it reflects bigger ideas and concerns and pressures and values um, across the united states across um kind of societal uh issues and um dynamics i think the second piece and i think it's related to the politics is that we don't there isn't one for schooling. So there are always multiple competing purposes and goals and values within schooling. And so if we are using schooling to develop awesome citizens, then we're going to emphasize and do different things than if we're working towards schools that produce people who can be widgets in a factory. And if we're just looking to develop future workers. And the issue is we're constantly kind of juggling those different purposes within this political context. And so people glom, into, glom onto one quick solution or one quick thing to be to go onto their soapbox and sort of talk about and push is a way to kind of win these sort of political battles towards particular purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that helps. It's such a complex profession, right? And 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 I think you've pointed out that there's just uh, many ways people view education, not, not just to teach and learn. Us, a, a, a very simple. Uh, approach. And we can't separate schools from everything else. So schools are completely connected to housing policy, to economic policy, to because once we have an economic policy where there are folks who are having trouble, um, who have food insecure households, then that puts one more responsibility on the plate, no pun intended, for schools to provide the food kids mm -hmm. right and then once schools are also providing food for kids that's taking kind of time and energy and bandwidth I don't want to say away like they shouldn't do that but it is taking it away if we think about it in a zero-sum way from how do we teach reading or how do we support teachers or how do we uh yeah mentor teacher leaders or whatever 
Yeah. And also how do teachers view their students? <clears throat> if they are aware of what the students bring and don't bring to the classroom and they have ideas, often unconscious, but have ideas about um, who they teach and why and who they are and why they teach. And when their students don't kind of match the stories we've been telling ourselves about why I teach first grade or why I teach high school English or what my job is as an English teacher really. Mm -hmm. There's often a mismatch and I actually think it's a really exciting generative place that that mismatch is a good thing mm -hmm. but there's often a mismatch between like the class you dream up um, when you are uh, thinking about the the school year coming in the fall the the dream in your head in early August of like who will be there and what it'll be like that's not who shows up. There's always something different. People, children always surprise you. Um, but sometimes those surprises throw teachers for a loop and they aren't prepared to embrace them the way that they might have if, um, if they dreamed them up perfectly. So yeah. I always talk about how, you know, um, comprehension, one, one heuristic for thinking about comprehension is the combination of a reader, text, and activity in some kind of context, the RAND model. And you can change the text and you can change the activity, but it's really difficult to change. Like you can't walk down and say, Mr. Renwick, can I have different students, please? Because this isn't working in my class. <laughs> Usually the answer would be you're fired. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, um, but it happens. It is a very that we don't know about until we walk in and meet them. And we also don't really know the, um, the sort of 360 view of that variable until it unfolds over time. Right. But I think that just to, to build in the middle ground, Sarah kind of gave us a macro, like the, how the policies of different kinds of policies connect, and then also a micro, just how um, individuals are trying to make sense of something that is political in a context we tend to think of as neutral and unassailably good. Mm. Education is good, right? Come to school and it's always good, but it isn't good um, for a lot of people whose identities or backgrounds or futures are actually harmed by the way they've interacted with the school system. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of what Sarah's talking about that teachers are doing is unconscious mm -hmm. and it's unconscious because um, I'm not saying teachers are doing bad things for the most part. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe they're doing really good things. Um, but uh, searching for black or white, yes or no, I do it this way, not this way. It's because we don't traffic in all the details. We have metaphors for things mm -hmm. and kind of hang on to them. And so I think, you know, if you ask people what's balanced literacy, you get a huge range of answers. But if you ask people, do you like balanced literacy? They're very certain. But, but can you tell me exactly what it is and why you like it? Well, it's the, th it's the thing, you know, it's, I have this kind of vision or image or metaphor around what it is and how it's good. I think schools are a melting pot. Well, should they be? Uh, but, you know, we have these ideas that are shorthands for bigger messaging um, that's more overtly or explicitly political. We kind of like hang on to them. Mm -hmm. And it seeps down into, which is the work Sarah, Sarah and I have done together a little bit, it seeps down into the very wording and language choices and word choices and patterns of interaction um, that are available for us as, as just part of our linguistic or discursive repertoire. Like mm -hmm. the way we know how to talk about teaching is polarized. So if we're using teachy words, teachy learning words, we're going to end up with two sides. Mm -hmm. Really have to think about a different way of talking about teaching and learning if we're trying to be anything other than political and divided. The accountability movement has added a certain kind of pressure and or mm -hmm. many pressures and what's something that Rachel and I have talked a lot about, kind of like a fear factor, right? So mm -hmm. there's this fear factor with teacher evaluation. And so 
some of my hunch is that some of the discourse about learning loss or about the COVID slide or about the COVID chasm um, is partially um, rooted or attributable to folks wondering, like, you know, am I going to be penalized? Like, mm -hmm. what are test scores going to look like? Are we going to have tests? I think there are many within the education community who are waking up and or cognizant that, like, we need to think far beyond kind of test scores in one year or two years or even three mm -hmm. years down the road. And but at the same time, I think it's really hard. Folks have really been steep. We're now, you know, it's basically we're at the close to the 20 year anniversary of NCLB. I've been doing the math that now it turns out that like there are probably there are many principals who are now building leaders who were never teachers pre NCLB. Mm -hmm. um, so we are now like in this sort of generation where like the NCLB level kind of teeth of accountability and standards movement are getting more and more deeply kind of institutionalized and yeah. baked in. Um, and so when there's something like COVID that was sort of the one more thing, and obviously it's a giant one more thing, mm. um, you know, I think it triggers or contributes to this sort of um, fear factor, for lack of a better term, um, and just concern and sort of this tightening up of like, what's going to happen to test scores? You know, every other year we've done this thing with testing and test scores. And, and yeah. again, I'm not saying that to blame specific educators that are responding mm -hmm. that way or even sort of system leaders that, that have done this. I just think that we're, you know, again, sort of historically and as a system, we've made enough decisions that that's, that that's led to some of these responses um, this spring and summer. Yeah, I came mm -hmm. in uh, in 2000 or 1999. And, um, and we, I volunteered to take uh, the Iowa test I mean, I wanted to know how my kids stacked up, but there was no pressure in which to take yeah. that test. And I just looked at the scores as just one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And it was always, you know, later on, it, you know, I could never really address it with the kids I currently have, but just more trend over time. And, and you're right, it's the pressure that's come from the test has really, I think, forced people to pick sides in, in a way and, and adopt a certain language frame in which to talk about their practice. And, you know, and I think, I think that's, a good point to then segue into evaluation and just how do we make this work period, but just especially within this context. And I, and I think about maybe trying to surface some of these terms and languages and just have some conversations around them. Like, like you were saying, Rachel, just what do you mean by balanced literacy? And, and, and what might that look like? You know, the word might, might is pretty important. I think right now to open up ideas, but uh, just, to, I think just, supervision through conversation is, is one approach that we might take, but what are your thoughts? Uh, I think about the cognitive dissonance that it creates when one message is you're evaluated as an individual and you are held accountable for your student's growth. And that is part of you being a professional or not. Professionalism is kind of dangled above your head with this mm -hmm. whole evaluation thing. If you want to be thought of as a professional, then we have to evaluate you the way we do corporate people. Mm. even though your work is totally different yep whatever um and then in the covid crisis there's this other and here's where the distance comes in there's this whole like we're in this together um we're going to make it out together we have collective responsibility for one another we as a community are what's going to decide there's nothing individual about it um you know we can sort of trace it back to one individual but it doesn't matter it's about has the community taken steps and is the community looking out for each other? And when people are in trouble because of things that are happening related to the shutdowns and the um, and illnesses and loss of work and everything, um, are people pulling together as a community? Those are two very different messages. Mm -hmm. So the idea of coming back um, 
coming back and being evaluated. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it comes from such a different world from mm -hmm. an accountability instead of from a community support frame. And I wonder about that contrast and I wonder if it's worth it. Mm -hmm. um, the possible benefit of, ha of having a robust evaluation system is potentially improving instruction and removing people that are not improving. It hasn't demonstrated tremendous ability to do that <laughs> in and most contexts. And I, I remember reading that in your book, I think a couple times you mentioned there's really no studies that show any kind of significant benefit to teacher growth from professional evaluation. I think it's improved from when I was teaching and our principal would just show up mm -hmm. and, and take their perspective to craft a, a written narrative, but it was always from what they viewed as quality teaching. And so I think we're on a, a path toward it, but. I agree. Um, I really the, like the idea that people are having conversations about what counts as good here mm -hmm. and, and what does it look like and how do we get there? So to the extent that that's happening, that's really good. And in the context of our book, we call that a support and development frame and giving somebody a number at the end of that and saying, here's your rating really, really knocks us back into the space of accountability is saying, this is how good you are at this. Yeah. Regardless of all the other factors that are in play, we're going to say that you are a five, four, three, two, one, and we might have um, pay or promotion or, or tenure or whatever tied to it. Who knows? Um, it really varies. And I think over time, the trend has been to have less and less attached to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and given that it's such a labor intensive and thought intensive activity, you have to bring your whole humanity, you have to bring your whole intelligence to evaluating a teacher and having a really good conversation. It takes so much like leadership, emotional intelligence, knowledge about teaching to do it well. It's labor intensive and the outcome of it is questionable. Mm -hmm. The outcome of conversations about teaching and learning are unquestionably good. So yep. should we have lots more conversations about teaching and learning yes. that are focused or based in practice that have a shared language that move us toward a shared vision, like sign everybody up and do it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Should we be evaluating teachers right now? What are you going to do? Fire them? Like, what? <laughs> I just want I them to show up and, <laughs> and connect and with the kids. To add to that, I really liked how you, Rachel sort of mentioned of sort of the shared, the shared conversation. And I think that one piece that we talk about in the book and that, um, Rachel and I have done some other work on is that the power of the tools. So mm -hmm. teacher evaluation systems provide a set of tools and um, something that's interesting and important is that states and districts sort of set those up and can they can build infrastructure around those tools and the types of instruction yeah. that are kind of baked in and um, promoted by those tools. And then those tools can be used in different spaces by different people at different times to learn in different ways, not just for evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like the sort of common set of tools that are used within evaluation can be used for other sorts of conversation outside of evaluation, mm -hmm. especially outside of this measurement function of evaluation. I do want to add that I have the sort of, I had not put this together until really right now. So, you know, this is why conversations are good. Um, you know, as we think of, um, we were talking about conversations being good for instruction. This is educative for me too. Um, as teachers, you know, since teachers have pivoted to this online remote learning, um, there may be aspects of the teacher evaluation rubric that no longer fit. And or I think that that's an interesting um, exercise and or opportunity to figure out, not that we want more rubrics for the sake of more rubrics, but to figure out like, how do we characterize, describe, discuss, have a shared set of language around good, appropriate, effective 
equitable um, approaches within remote learning, within mm -hmm. uh, online teaching. Um, because I think there's a certain temptation to do the kind of school peg round hole, like, oh, you can do the same thing that you're doing. And there have been these conversations within higher ed instruction, I think also within K-12 instruction, like, oh, just get on Zoom and do your lecture. Just, you know, mm -hmm. get on Zoom and do your class morning meeting. And like, that might not necessarily work depending on age, depending on tech, depending on teaching skills, depending on the way kind of humans' brains work. I don't know. Rachel, do you want to build on this? I think you might agree. have done more thinking. And yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really, it's a really important way to think about it. That I'm, I'm thinking even just about like participation is a pretty common thing to, to show up across lots of different rubrics. Like, is there equitable participation? Do students look like they're engaged? But engagement online is so different and depends on so many things that aren't related to actions the teacher took. We're out of um, our control. Exactly. And I think what it's highlighted for us is this was always true, but it's just much clearer now that it really takes two to tango. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that a teacher is not responsible. Like that doesn't actually take responsibility away from the teacher. It adds agency to the student. Yes. That they're, um, you know, when we think of students as being uncooperative or as not um, moving quickly enough or, uh, you know, anything that we see in a classroom setting, they showed up, mm -hmm. they were there, they were, you know, they, you know, there, there are all these steps that we take for granted uh, mm -hmm. when we're sitting there thinking things aren't working. And again, I think it's that mismatch in our expectations. I planned this lesson thinking that everybody's eyes were going to be on me and your eyes aren't. And what do I do about that mismatch? Mm -hmm. Do I see it as a problem? Do I see it as an opportunity? Do I see it as Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why. Like yeah. your um, orientation to those mismatches, um, like I think it can be really exciting and fruitful. And that's when you get better and when kids lean in. Mm -hmm. But it also can be the like once there is a, a little bit of a gap between what we hope would happen and what actually happens, that um, can get big really quickly and online has just made it faster. So like mm -hmm. you didn't show up for the first lesson. He's disconnected. He's disengaged. He, you know. Yeah. Instead of, oh, I wonder why, like our investigation lenses. It's just got to um, reframe so much of what we've done to, like I was teaching summer school uh, this summer. Tomorrow's my last class with fourth graders. I'm co-teaching and, and, and one girl is showing up and um, some days her eyes aren't even open, <laughs> but she's there, you know, and, and yeah. we're, so then we're talking about what can we do to do differently here because we don't have a lot of, as much control anymore like we used to. Yeah. yeah. Well, this was a great conversation. I wish we could keep going, um, but I try to keep these to 20 minutes. But this was a great conversation just about how do we approach these new times. And, and I, I, just, I just think we have to be more mindful of just what we're thinking, what we're saying, the language we're using, and just continue to reexamine it through conversation and reflection. So thank you, uh, Dr. Rachel Gabriel and Dr. Sarah Wolpen from the University of Connecticut. And they are the authors of Making Teacher Evaluation Work, a guide for literacy teachers and leaders. I think this is a great text for any leader, a perspective or current, as well as anyone teaching a supervision course at higher ed. Um, I think this would really add a, a nice nuance to uh, specific to literacy, which has got to be a priority in every school. So thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.